This is The Cable. Big bid on 10-year treasuries over the last week. Tech story is front and centre. A lot of people saying, no, thank you, step back. You're saying, get in, why? Your connection from the London market close to the US market action. A significant sell-off in European assets. The dollar a little bit stronger today. This is a stock that is increasingly being shorted. The Cable. An historic moment from which there can be no turning back. With Jonathan Farrow and Guy Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. Welcome back. You are listening to The Cable on Bloomberg Radio. I'm Guy Johnson. Joining you here in London, John Farrow uh, has a well-deserved week off. Let's talk about where we were with equity markets today. A strong session out of Asia meant that Europe popped sharply to the upside today. Uh, A number of interesting stock stories that are worth paying attention to, uh, one of which was AstraZeneca, the stock moving higher today as the President of the United States uh, talks about an accelerated process uh, for the Oxford vaccine, which is partly being produced uh, by uh, AstraZeneca or being produced by AstraZeneca. AstraZeneca though pouring a little bit of cold water on that. Uh, And then we had a, uh, a interesting story surrounding BT. News over the weekend, speculation over the weekend, uh, the BT is on high alert for a takeover. Uh, A lot of notes being written today suggesting uh, that actually uh, the pension fund issue or the deficit on the pension fund could cause problems for that. Um, Let's talk a little bit about what's driving the markets at the moment. Once again, it is the US tech sector providing a strong support uh, to equity investors. Apple in particular uh, is one stock that is in focus. The stock currently up by 2.21%. This follows the uh, the news of the stock split that Apple is pushing forward with. Um, And a lot of people concerns that... We are seeing a market basically driving Apple's share price higher simply because it is having a stock split. Uh, if I gave you five $20 bills, £20 notes, would you give me 100 back? Well, at the moment, the market is saying, actually, that those five twenties are worth maybe a little bit more, maybe 115 Doesn't seem to add up, does it? Earlier on, uh, I talked to Shannon Cross along with Kaylee Lines to get her take on this. She follows Apple closely. I think, you know, you've got supply and demand, and and when you have a lower price, I understand the fundamentals don't change. When you have a lower acquisition price, I think one of the things Apple is looking at is that it's more accessible to, you know, a grandma wanting to buy a share for her grandson. And and that type of a a shareholder is incredibly sticky, and it's something that, you know, I think Apple is is definitely looking for. um, Plus, you know, they like the idea that sort of an egalitarian move. Again, understanding that, you know, multiples, have just expanded here because you haven't really had a significant change in uh, in the in the uh, underlying fundamentals. Right. Well, Shannon, um, let's pick up on that multiple because it's trading at the highest premium basically since all the way back in 2007. How much growth is already priced into the stock? And if it is to keep going higher, what is going to be that catalyst? I think one of the things that we've seen, it's not just with Apple, it's with some of the other leading tech names that have done very well is that people are looking out a couple of years. It's interesting, you know, it used to be people would call me and say, well, what are they going to do next quarter? And now people are saying, you know, what are Apple or Microsoft or some of these other companies going to be doing in two or three years? Because given COVID and all the challenges we have right now, it's very hard to sort of call a quarter because of shutdowns and, and all of that. And so people are looking for companies that have a very defensible position, a strong market share, recurring revenue from a services standpoint. Um, so you're definitely seeing, you know, the services business come in really strong for Apple. So, you know, I, I think it's it's interesting. It's sort of less what they're sort of baking in 
in the near term in terms of growth and more, you know, is this a company that we think is going to continue to be a leader when we get out to, you know, 2023, 2024 are kind of the, the years that people are talking about at this point. Can you value Apple that far out? Well, you know, it, if you look at it, they've got, what, about a billion five in, in, in their installed uh, devices. Um, you know, you've got a very strong recurring revenue base. Um, yeah, I don't think people are necessarily on the sell side. So my peers, you know, trying to figure out where the stock's going to be in, you know, four years but or three years. But I think people on the buy side are trying to say, what companies do I think are going to still be there and be leaders and get through this and, and come out on, you know, top and, frankly, gain share through it? And I think Apple is one of those. I mean, if you look at what Apple's been able to do with, you know, some of their installment plans, with the, uh, you know, basically where you return your phone and it goes in and it, you know, is sold as a used phone and that increases their installed base and the next time that person goes to buy a phone, they buy a new one. Um, you know, it, they've, they've built a very strong engine. And then you throw on top of all of the services that they're doing and the fact that the services businesses continue to grow. Um, you know, I think that's interesting. I will say, and it's not just for Apple, that consumer electronics, Microsoft Gaming, all of that have definitely benefited from the stimulus. Mm-hmm. So, you know, going back to what I think your last guest said, you know, stimulus plans are important or programs are important right now to keep the uh, the consumer out buying. Well, and, of course, back to school is a factor in that as well, Shannon. A lot of people need to buy iPads and the like to teach their kids at home. But what happens when we get that new iPhone launching this fall? What kind of driver is that going to be? You know, I, look, I think it's – I think Apple has looked at it as almost sort of – evolutionary rather than revolutionary in terms of 5G. There will obviously be people who want to go out and buy the latest, greatest 5G phone, but I think the 5G refresh and what we're going to see from Apple over the next few years and, and some of the other competitors as well is where you know, you're, you're going to have the installed base quickly sort of with a blip, but then over time really um, transition over. And again, you've got to get 5G coverage out there and you have to have the services, the VR, the AR capabilities that really are a reason that people want to buy it. But it's it's something where I think the uh, the the near term iPhone will do well, but it's going to be a longer term tailwind. I guess especially when you think about the kind of install base that Apple has, has developed. So it'll be positive. The other thing I'd point out is that Apple continues to sell Macs and uh, iPads to people who are new to Apple and new to Mac, which you know is pretty remarkable at this point. It's going to be interesting to see ultimately, though, how the China story breaks down for Apple. We continue to see pressure on Chinese tech. Uh, Alibaba, obviously one of those. WeChat looks like it's got some sort of a reprieve uh, over the weekend, potentially uh, from president, the president of the United States. Uh, but the TikTok story remains front and center, as does Huawei. Uh, and maybe Apple has the, uh, the potential to be the other end of that story. Uh, and we could see the Chinese taking tougher, tougher lines. Uh, when it comes to U.S. tech, with maybe Apple at the front of the queue. Uh, up next, we'll talk more about what's happening with these markets with Marcus Ashworth. He'll be joining us shortly. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow and Guy Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. 
Good evening. Welcome back. You're listening to The Cable. We're live on DAB Digital Radio. Just a recap of the price action. The euro stocks 50 up by 2.21% of the close. The FTSE 100 up by 1.71. The CAC Carants and the DAX up by, let's call it circa 2.3-2.4%. Marcus Ashworth joins us now from Bloomberg Opinion to give us his take. Marcus, the markets continue to march ever higher, at least the equity markets do. What do you make of where we are as we approach the end of the summer and everybody gets back to their virtual or real desks and starts making investment decisions again? Hi, Guy. Um, well, I think the, the one thing you can say is that the uh, European Central Bank and the Fed um, wanted a quiet uh, summer, and they have achieved that uh, in the context that the uh, European Union did what they needed to do with the recovery fund. The central banks have done what they said they would do with regards to ongoing stimulus. That's made credit spreads pretty much across the board tighten in. Uh, the U.S. Have, have gone even further with credit spreads as the Fed's gone sort of into the curve uh, of credit and um, even high yield. Um, so, I mean, in that sense, you know, everything's driving its, itself on. It's the reason why one sector is good is because the other sector is good. And it's a, it's a, should we say, a virtuous circle, if you believe in these things. Uh, it does obviously uh, offer up uh, serious issues about what happens if the economy doesn't recover in, into potentially second waves and uh, and furloughing schemes dropping away, and of course a, a raft of new issue uh, supply coming in, in the bond markets, which is, which is heading our way very shortly. Yep. Vodafone came today in big size, um, and we've seen both Germany and Italy go with very long dated stuff. So this is just a, a precursor. We, we've got a, a lot of volume to get through in, in, in the next uh, next few months, and, and we, we have to see economic strength to to back it up. But otherwise, um, perhaps the QE will, will begin to have less of an effect, I'm afraid. The, the, the market's expecting Powell to be dovish, even more dovish than, than maybe we would have even thought a few weeks ago when it comes to Jackson Hole this Thursday. Uh, can he deliver on dovish expectations? I, I don't think he will, or, or maybe not quite as much as the market wants to. I think there the, are the two key aspects coming up. One is Inflation averaging, the, the theory that you, it's been running below average, therefore you should let it run above average. Essentially, two wrongs hoping to make it right. Um, and I think that will be something which um, the Fed will be happy to sort of play around with. Uh, they're doing a lot of um, dangling of carrots uh, on fine talk um, for, for cheap stuff. And really, that, that the ultimate one of that is yield curve control, which is the other aspect which they may touch on. I don't think the Fed really wants to go for it. There are certainly people in the Fed who do, but I don't think there's a majority. And that'll be one thing which, uh, you know, for the last 10 minutes, it's quite clear that Powell wasn't willing to be pushed into a corner. Um, he said it's so uncertain, effectively, that therefore there's no point putting prescriptive medicine out there. You don't really quite know what you're, what you're supposed to be uh, medicating against. So I, I think they may try and sort of keep the debate going without really coming down on one side or the other. I really hope they don't do yield curve control. I think this would be ruinous to free markets. Uh, it, it looks like QE on the cheap, and it, it, isn't it great? But when, when the, and there will, markets will test this at some point. Uh, the Fed will have to deliver in size, which it, it probably doesn't want to do. And it, equally, it will just kill liquidity in, in the world's most important market, certainly for interest rates. Um. There is a lot of supply coming out of the the U.S. Treasury. Do you think the Fed's going to shift to longer-dated purchases, maybe to absorb some of that supply and keep the yield curve relatively flat? 
I think that runs the risk of, of, of stepping into monetary financing. If you're completely matching what the um, you know, current U.S. Treasury is trying to do with 20 years and what have you, then it, it's a bit it's a bit Carly and the horses. So I, I, I will be. I'm not saying the Fed won't do it, but I don't think they're going to do it in, in too big a size or too obviously, because I think it does put them in a quite a difficult situation. And the yield curve is there for a reason. It's there to price out risk and, uh, and incentivize banks as well. So you, know, you play with this stuff. And the, the, the Bernanke Fed mucked around with a thing called Operation Twist, which in essence didn't work. Yep. Um, and then they tried tapering, and that really didn't work. And you know, <laughs> and they tried raising interest rates, and that one didn't work yep. either. But well, let's let's carry on the conversation in just a moment. Stick around, Marcus. This is Bloomberg. This is the Cable with Jonathan Farrow and Guy Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. Welcome back. You're listening to the Cable. We're live on DAB Digital Radio. I'm Guy Johnson, joining you here in London. My colleague in New York, John Farrow, enjoying a well-deserved week off. Let's talk about what's happening in the UK, the UK economy and UK politics. Still with us, Bloomberg Opinions, Marcus Ashworth. Marcus, let's talk about what is happening with British politics and how that intersects with the data we are likely to see coming out of the UK economy. And then we'll talk about how the UK economy is priced. At the moment, the pound's trading pretty strongly against the dollar, less so against the euro. Gilts have gone nowhere in a hurry. The FTSE's looking pretty shipshape. Doesn't really reflect much of what's happening in the UK economy. Let's start off with the politics and its intersection with the economy. This weekend, the Prime Minister spent a lot of time talking about how important what it was for schools to go back so that parents could re-enter the workforce. How important is this, both for Boris Johnson and the British economy? Well, um, I, I don't think it's quite as important for Boris Johnson as perhaps uh, some of the media would like it to be, um, because you know he does have a Teflon ability to move over these things. If it isn't obviously his fault, e.g., there's a, a second wave and it, it's uncontrollable, or whatever, then I think politically he can, you know, there's only so many hits you can take to credibility and, and uh, confidence in, in running. But I, I, it is evidently very important to the economy. And I think it's the, the trigger to get um, everyone back in work is by getting the kids back in schools and, and, and that part of the economy functioning at least. I mean, I was up in London the first time for five months on Wednesday last week, and it was just a ghost town in Mayfair. Unbelievable. And I believe, from what I understand, the city's even quieter. You know, there isn't, there is a real reluctance to get back into um, the, the work parts of London. You know, the, the, the recreational areas are, are going fine, but the economy is, is going to get up to about 99.5% of where it was before this all hit. But it's, that last 5% is going to prove very, very hard indeed. And we've got to get those schools back because that's the only way the, the, the economy can start to function in any semi-way normally. What are the, what are, I, do you think we've had the easiest bits thus far in terms of the economic recovery? I wonder whether people talk about a V-shaped recovery, and I think the UK economy has experienced less of a V-shape than others, but I'm wondering if that the, the kind of the easy part of the V is now over, in fact, whether the V is over, and whether the kind of climb from where we are now to that 95% that you're talking about becomes harder and harder. Well, I, I, it does become harder and harder, and, and yes, I think we saw with the PMIs uh, the last few days that you know, France had a particularly bad knock, and the UK looked like it was coming back really strong up to 60%. But you have to understand, one, obviously, 
the UK was uh, behind as far as opening up the economy, um, and obviously parts of France have started to sort of slow back down again in, in the context of, um, you know, obviously with, with, with further cases. So there's just a lagged effect there, and it's a diffusion index anyway, so it's just literally have what, you know, do you feel better than last month or worse? It's, it's, yeah. it's not necessarily going to correlate fully through the GDP growth. Uh, I do think that the UK obviously is going to um, attempt, probably wisely, but it's very brave, to come off the furlough scheme um, earlier than otherwise would be seen across Europe. And that's going to have an effect on GDP, obviously. However, for the long run, it might be the right thing to do rather than just perpetuating a sort of uh, unreal situation of of so-called employment. Do you think... I, do you think the UK is capable of moving away from what has been the model over the last few years, which has been a huge dependency on services, many of which are kind of great jobs, some of which are less great jobs, and a huge dependency as well on hospitality? Do you think it's possible for the UK economy to pivot? And if it is, can the government kind of push that story and make it even more effective? Uh, no is a simple answer. I don't think it can pivot, certainly not quick enough. However, it can and will. Uh, it's far more entrepreneurial. Um, you know, we've seen the Spanish economy react and the Irish economy as well. They're the more entrepreneurial sides of Europe, and the UK is certainly within that. You know, services are going to be predominantly, you know, manufacturing is certainly not going to come back all of a sudden. Um, it will in parts, but I mean, there are other parts of the economy, life sciences, tech, where I think the UK can and will adapt much quicker than the rest of Europe. And that, that over time will be its, hopefully, its saving grace. But, I mean, there are going to be uh, flexibility, in, and, and clearly that the, the government and, and the Bank of England together have worked very well to uh, spot and isolate different things. So I think the government will be continue to be very creative and supportive where it may be. And one, for instance, might be that they may furlough or extend furlough in certain industries rather than, uh, than across the across the. Uh, whole economy, I think that might be something which is we're looking to quite carefully. That's the fiscal side of the equation. Let's talk about the monetary side of the equation. Currently, there are no rate cuts priced between now and the end of the year. Do you think that's the right call? Yeah, I mean, you may know I've been railing against the whole talk of negative rates. I mean, we were talking about the Fed earlier. It's the one thing that they, they, they were much clearer on basically saying they weren't interested in negative rates. The Bank of England had a weird wobble of, of thinking about thinking about it, and it's in its toolbox and all that sort of stuff. But I think they were trying to have their cake and eat it in the context of, of keeping rates very low. But the practical reality is neither the U.S. or U.K. economies suit negative rates that's probably not built for them. I think we've finally got rid of that for the moment anyway, but, you know, the, the Bank of England has decided to take quite an aggressive stance, led by the chief economist Haldane. They're essentially saying it's a V recovery, and I think they are right to do that for the moment. But we will see them move very quickly. It's evident that as one is a second wave, or the economy really isn't responding, or it needs a, a more accurate, more lazily guided uh, form of term funding scheme for small industries. So what would that look like? Well, as I said, I think uh, targeted bank lending through the term funding scheme, uh, making it very attractive for banks to lend to certain types of, of, of industry is one way. Um, and really, the thing that frustrates me in the Bank of England, it, it's still doing all the right things on the monetary side, but in its financial regulation, which, you know, I understand what it's there for, but they are 
very, very harsh on mortgage lending and other types of lending within the economy. They're keeping a very close eye on yeah. the, the mortgage lenders are, are being very, very cautious, possibly overcautious at this moment in time. That's something the Bank of England could do, I think, more on by easing off on, on its the heavy-handed uh, regulation on the banks, particularly with uh, things like mortgage lending. It's interesting that the housing market is actually relatively okay at the moment. You wonder how long that's going to last for. Marcus, always appreciate your time. Thank you for joining us. Bloomberg's Marcus Ashworth. Up next, we'll hear from Vince Signorella. We'll get his take on what is happening in these markets. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow and Guy Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. Welcome back. You're listening to The Cable. We're live on DAB Digital Radio in the London area and around the world on all of your Bloomberg devices. Let's talk about where equity markets finished here in Europe. Then I'll update you on what's happening stateside. So a strong tailwind coming out of Asia overnight meant that most main European equity markets gapped higher first thing this morning, albeit on light volume. Since then, they've really gone sideways. But the FTSE 100 up by 1.71% today. The CAC 40 over in France up by 2.28%. The DAX outperforming even that up by 2.36%. But as I say, all of this delivered on light volume. Some interesting stock stories, some M&A rumours surrounding BT, driving that stock up by circa 7% today. We also saw a solid day for AstraZeneca. Over the weekend, the President of the United States talked about fast-tracking the Oxford vaccine that AstraZeneca uh, is producing. AstraZeneca putting out a statement today suggesting that that may not be the case. Nevertheless, the stock, as I say, trading higher. Uh, Let's talk about what's happening in these markets and what kind of a week we are going to have. Markets laser focused on Thursday. Uh, We're not only going to hear from the President of the United States, but we're also going to hear from Federal Reserve Chair Jay Powell. This is we have a virtual Jackson Hole meeting. No fly fishing this year. Everything done virtually. Nevertheless, the markets on tenderhooks, as I say. Let's get Vince Signorella's take on what we should expect. Vince, let's talk a little bit about what is driving markets more broadly at the moment. Central bank policy has been a huge factor in that. We've had a hugely dovish Fed. Market expects Jay Powell to be very dovish this week. Is he going to deliver? I think he has to. I think especially in the face of what we heard over the weekend, um, the House passed the bill to fund the post office um, and the Senate's not even in session to take it up and the president has threatened to veto it. So we're still miles apart on even just that that bill, let alone the stimulus bill, which we're nowhere close on. There's still about a, a trillion to a trillion and a half away on that. So if you if you looked at the minutes of, of that came out last week, they, they specifically mentioned in the minutes they did see more stimulus coming. And the lack of stimulus coming anytime soon would suggest that the Fed would definitely have to be more cautious and cautious being on the dovish side of things. Does that mean a weaker dollar? Yeah, I think the dollar does continue to weaken. It's an interesting thing I noted today. I'm, I'm going to be writing about this later on for the uh, MY block. But one of the things I think that uh, people are not seeing is when you talk about the decline in real yields and that being an impact on the dollar, the decline in yields of late is being driven by rising inflation expectations if you look at the U.S. Treasury break-evens. Now, that inflation expectation rising would erode the purchasing power of the dollar, also put a bit under gold. So if that continues, and 
is we just said there's no reason to see it not continuing. Yields aren't going anywhere. Um, and inflation expectations, given the size of the deficit, may continue or should continue to increase. That erosion of real yield will definitely weigh on, on, on the dollar, I think. Market's very short, the dollar, though. I, how stretched can that be? Uh, very, very short. And you can see the spikes uh, come from time to time. We saw a bit of it uh, today. The dollar bounced off the lows. Uh, didn't take long for cable to make new lows, although, you know, un- underscoring cable, why it's still on a 130 handle, given what's going on with Brexit, I must have to say it surprises me. Uh, but perhaps I need to just be a little more patient with that one. But, yeah, the dollar, I think, um, you know, we can see a little sideways action because of what could happen in Europe. The numbers weren't so great, and obviously what's going on in sterling but by and large the dollar should continue a bit under pressure if we do see a significant spike in the case count here in europe which is kind of underway at the moment does that undermine the story surrounding the euro we did see the uh, the high frequency pmi data friday starting to show maybe a slowdown in the recovery if that continues will that undermine the case for for putting more money into the single currency I, I think so, for sure. I think then you'd probably start to see um, not necessarily the dollar come off, although it would, uh, uh, rather the dollar strength, but it would most likely against the euro. But what you'd probably see is euro crosses being sold off. So euro, euro yen, there'd be a bid in yen, a uh, bid in Swiss franc, uh, a bit of a bid perhaps even in cable, given, the, given that situation. And the euro would probably move more rapidly or more so against other currencies, rather than the dollar per se. What do you think the pound's worth? You said you, you can't kind of get your head around what's happening. I, I, it, where, where do you think it goes? Uh, I, I, think, I think sterling's a, a more like a, a buck and a quarter, to be honest. Uh, I think there's, there's a, a bit of a downside to it, and that's more fundamentally, technically, actually, that the, the technicals do look good for sterling uh, on a 130, 130 and a half handle. Um, there's good support down around the 130, 30, 40 level. Um, I think we will need to get through those levels to have the technicals match up with uh, the fundamentals. As you say, if you have a deterioration in the economy in Europe, um, that's because of the spread of the virus, perhaps, um, that's certainly not good for the good news for the pound as well and for the UK. But, nobody, but, but nobody's positioning for that. If you take a look at the options market, I, nobody's expecting volatility in sterling. Uh, no, and I and I am surprised. I mean, the talks just the talks aren't going well at all, and we're getting closer and closer to deadline. You only got about um, you know basically two and a half months where the deal needs to be implemented at the end of October, um, and you have the two months left. And I talked to people this morning, and the complacency made me smile because all of a sudden I'm hearing, well, they're just going to go to the WCO rules, and we've known that all along, and yet we've seen Brexit hysteria, and now where it looks like. Realistically, they may not come to a deal at the end of October. The market's starting to accept it to the sense that they're saying maybe it's just not that big a deal and we've been making too much of it. I I don't know. Um, It's going to be interesting to see, but certainly, like you said, it's definitely not priced in. Always appreciate your time, Vince. Thank you very much indeed for it. Vince Signorello, macro strategist for Bloomberg. The President of the United States is currently speaking at the Republican National Convention in Charlotte, North Carolina. Up next, we're going to hear from Greg Valliere of AGF Investments. He'll talk more about the U.S. political scene. That's next. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow and Guy Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. 
Welcome back. The President of the United States, Donald Trump, currently speaking at the Republican National Convention, the RNC, in Charlotte, North Carolina, telling the convention we're going to have to watch this election carefully, he says. Earlier, Kelly Lines and I spoke to Greg Valliero of AGF Investments to talk more about the RNC. Well, I think he fights back primarily by going after Biden's agenda. I think going after Biden's mental acuity is, it isn't going to work. Biden was pretty sharp last Thursday, as we all know. But the agenda is another story. And I think that all the Republicans will go after, my gosh, look at the tax hikes that Biden's proposing, individual, corporate, Social Security, capital gains, Wall Street transaction tax. The list goes on and on and on. And I think that's where the Democrats may be vulnerable. As you suggest, maybe that is the way that the president should attack Biden. The question is, will he attack Biden that way? Do you think he stays on script? Well, that's that's a really good point. I think that, you know, Trump sometimes doesn't, as we all know, does not stay on script. If he starts to go after Q, Q, QAnon and he starts to talk about his relatives, uh, he, he could ruin a good news day. He could step on a good news day, and I think that's important. But if he stays on script and talks about Biden's agenda and um, urban violence, which I think is a legitimate issue, I think he would do pretty well. I think also, one other quick point, I think Trump needs to tell people what he would do. I haven't heard a lot from Trump on what his agenda is for the next four years. Who is the president actually trying to speak to here? Because CBS released a poll over the weekend that found the majority of Republicans actually think the economy is doing okay and they actually approve of the way his administration has handled the virus. So clearly his base is still behind him. So who is he trying to reach? Great point. So obviously his base will follow him no matter what. So he's got them locked up. I think number one and two and three is college-educated women. That's the key constituency that he needs to, uh, to win over. His numbers with college-educated women are terrible. So I think he has to sound a little more moderate. I mean, to be stridently right-wing, to me, doesn't get him anything. He's already got those voters. What about China? Well, I think he's going to go after Biden and maybe Biden's son on their dealings with China. I think he'll be very uh, harsh with China. No, no doubt in my mind that's going to be a, a big uh, issue for him as well. Greg, what about the Senate? Has the market properly considered the threat of a blue wave come November? I don't think so. I, mean, I, I looked at the seats just uh, yesterday, and it looks like the Republicans could lose four and the Democrats could lose one. So there's a net of three. If it's a net of three and Biden wins, the president breaks the tie. So maybe the Republicans would lose more than four. We'll see. But this is not in the markets. A Biden victory is in the markets. But a blue wave where the Democrats have everything, I think that's not in the markets. How close do you think this election is going to be? We are still a long way out, Greg. What is your sense of kind of where the polls go October into November? Well, I think, first of all, you really have to take the poll seriously a week from today. We'll have both conventions out of the way. The first debate is September 29th. But I think before then, the polls will begin to tighten. And I think after the debate, they could tighten more. Uh, right now, Biden leads by about seven and a half, maybe eight points. I think by the time we get into early October, it'll be four points, five points. And if it's that close, uh, there are certain states like California and New York that will have landslides for Biden. If it's that close, that means you'd have to take out three or four points from California and New York. Then it's really close, and it boils down to just a handful of states, Florida, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Arizona. 
And Greg, we know the economy, of course, is going to factor into how close it is. So I want to ask you quickly on stimulus. Are we going to get another robust package before the election or is it going to be something bare bones in the next month or so? You know, I don't get this. For, for Trump to win, he's got to have a really robust economy. To have a robust economy, we need another stimulus bill. I think he hasn't pushed hard enough for it. McConnell hasn't pushed hard enough for it. Actually, even Pelosi, who spent all of her time this last weekend on the post office. But the Republicans in particular, I think, need a stimulus bill, and I think they will get one in two or three weeks. Greg Vallier of AGF speaking to Kelly Lines and myself a little bit earlier on. Up next, uh, Citigroup's chief U.S. equity strategist, Tobias Levkovich. That's next. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow and Guy Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. Welcome back. You're listening to The Cable. U.S. equity markets tracking through fresh record highs once again today. The S&P currently up by seven-tenths of 1%. Earlier today, Kaylee Lines and I spoke to Tobias Levkovich. He is City's chief U.S. equity strategist. We started by asking him uh, about this idea that today's rally is being driven on hope and expectation that the U.S. will get a vaccine. So, look, I think the market is looking for both in many respects. In other words, the vaccines that are being discussed, from my understanding, are more about protecting the person from getting the infection, but not necessarily transmitting the infection. On the other hand, the therapeutics are treating the actual infection. So we kind of need a mixture of both uh, results in order to protect the general citizenry. What do you make of, of what's driven things today, Tobias? I, uh, I'm still trying to get my arms around an, an understanding of, of what exactly the drivers are. Everybody's telling me it is this vaccine news, is it? Look, I think all the news on the healthcare front that are improving, if it's less infections, less hospitalizations, all those are perceived as positives in the market. And we're kind of suffering from what I refer to as FOMU, fear of meaningfully underperforming. So as stocks go up, fund managers have to participate. Otherwise, their careers may be at risk. And as a result, they continue to jump in. But they are jumping in in a kind of more discerning fashion. So this isn't necessarily a risk on trade. If you notice, uh, small caps are kind of lagging the general indices. It's, again, NASDAQ, the secular growth names, who are perceived as kind of more defensive characteristics because they benefit from the environment we're all in in terms of work from home, shelter in place. Uh, And while we are moving back towards normalcy, we probably can't get there fully until people feel truly protected. And that goes back to vaccines and therapeutics. Tobias, I have to ask you about your year end target 2900 on the S&P 500. That's downside of some 15 percent from where we're trading right now. And that makes you one of the most bearish on the street when there's not a lot of bears left. Pretty much everyone has surrendered to this rally. How have you held out here? Uh, that's a good question. Uh, look, we're, we're surprised by the strength of the market. We had thought there was risk in the market back in January. We thought there was opportunity back in March. The extent to which this rally and the extent of what I would call relentless Fed support and general central bank support globally um, is kind of the critical issue. And that's why we're waiting to hear with Mr. Powell's comments in Jackson Hole as well, or at least virtual Jackson Hole. Just, just sticking with the, with the targets and the positioning, we'll come to Jackson Hole in a minute, Tobias, uh, in more detail. Short bets in the S&P are at a 10-plus year low. What do you make of positioning? So, look, we, we track something in our panic euphoria model, which captures 
short interest, margin debt, put call ratios, the premiums we want to pay for put calls, um, even oil prices, money market funds, all these kind of different inputs. And we are at levels we haven't really seen since 2001, 2002. So we're well into Q4 territory on our model, 90% probability of a pullback in the market in the next 12 months based on history. The only time it didn't really work was in 1999 when the market kept going up in a bubble phenomenon. Now, we're not in a bubble today. We don't have, you know, man with a plan, dot-com stocks trading at ludicrous valuations. And the way we defined it as PEs back then were priced to eyeballs as opposed to priced earnings. Today, you have much more what I would call impressive companies with dominant market positions and more reasonable valuations in the tech sector. So it's not the same, but there is this, you know, the sense of the Fed's got my back, don't worry, everything's okay, we can take risk. Right. Clearly, Tobias, this market is betting that the Fed is just going to keep on keeping on. So what does it need to hear from Jackson Hole come Thursday? So there's a lot of discussion about what they might hear in terms of the Fed. Um, and there have been articles about this talking about the Fed moving from a 2% target to a 2% on average over the life of the cycle target. And if that's the case, then interest rates can stay low, even if inflation goes beyond 2%. Now, we're not on the cusp of that anyway. But in theory, you can go to 3% or more before the Fed has to act more decisively if they go to this 2% on average. And again, you know, we'll hear what they have to say on this with respect to that. But this is an ongoing study that they've been looking at for over a year. And it's not just about COVID. It's about how do we fight off or fend off the potential for more nefarious things like deflation. Tobias, we'll, we'll, talking to the Fed, will rates stay low forever? Because that seems to be the increasing bet in the market. <laughs> Forever is an incredibly long time and well beyond your mining and Kaylee's life. But um, I, I think the Fed will probably be staying um, with a very low interest rate policy for a while until we can get, you know, it, not just inflation, but just the economy back to a normal place. We still have 13 billion people who have lost their jobs since uh, January, February, even with, fortunately, many coming back, there's still a large segment of the population um, that still needs to get back to work. Well, speaking of low rates forever, let's talk about Treasury yields. 62 basis points on the 10-year. Does that mean you kind of have to be in equities to get any kind of semblance of yield in this environment? So the notion of Tina, there is no alternative. And, and, and there are alternatives out there. Um, one can look at, you know, it, it seems kind of scary when you say this, but commercial real estate, you can be looking at some distressed uh, bonds. You can look at other places to generate return, private equity. You don't have to just buy public equity. Um, so I, I think this idea of Tina is a little bit overdone. But, but let's talk about that 10-year Treasury yield kind of been sitting here in the 0.6-ish ranges. And it was at its worst 0.5 or so back in March. What's really interesting is if you look at the tips uh, break evens, same 10-year yield, but this case, it's here looking at inflation expectations. They've gone from the same 0.5% back in late March to about 1.5% today. So there's a divergence that we haven't seen in well over five years. I think the last time we saw it was 2011-2012, where 10-year break evens and 10-year treasury yields used to move in tandem, but now are kind of diverging which is kind of interesting, again, in terms of what inflation expectations are suggesting about economic recovery versus what bond yields that are being suppressed by central banks are suggesting. This sounds like a very counterintuitive thing to say. I, I, I want to focus in on some, some not individual stocks, but a broad theme. Do stock splits deliver higher prices? <laughs> so, look, I, 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 
I don't understand it entirely as a it's an investor, particularly because today you can actually go into some of these discount brokerage trading sites and buy fractional shares. So you don't even have to buy the full share. You can buy the stock split, if you like, well before any company does it. So I'm less inclined to believe it matters that much. Uh, you know, these are psychological issues for some people. And they're, you know, kind of I think a lot of professionals kind of look at it askance. Uh, Tobias, Tobias Levkovich, uh, city's chief equity strategist out of the uh, the United States for the United States, uh, talking there at the end about Apple, not directly, Apple having a four for one stock split, which seems to have driven the price higher. Hope you enjoyed the show. This was The Cable. This is Bloomberg. <laughs>